Amen. Most moms have a book stuffed with mementos and photos that chronicle the early years of her child's life. Her baby book is her cherished keepsake. And apparently, Mary also kept a baby book on her firstborn son. After Jesus' birth, Luke tells us, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Either literally or figuratively, she compiled a baby book. And this became primary source material for Luke's gospel. You remember while Paul was incarcerated in Caesarea, Luke toured the countryside researching the life of Jesus. Imagine him sitting with Mary, now an old woman, and him watching her pull out the Son of God's tattered baby book. Well, that's what we have here in chapter 2 as it records the birth of Jesus. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, was one of Rome's most successful emperors. It was said he came to a Rome made of bricks and left it a city of marble. Augustus transformed the whole empire with his mighty armies and his extensive roads. They even named a salad after him. The Caesar salad. His given name was Octavius, but in 27 BC, the Roman Senate approached him about taking a title. He could be called king or emperor or dictator. He chose Augustus, meaning the revered one. Obviously, the man didn't lack for ego. He claimed to be divine. In fact, this census was intended to show off the vastness of Augustus's kingdom and inflate his already bloated pride. Yet here's the irony. The man who thought he was a god and tried to prove his supremacy was actually being manipulated by the one true God. You see, Micah the prophet, 700 years beforehand, had foretold that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now God has a problem. Mary's about to deliver, and she's in Nazareth, a hundred miles from the God-appointed birthplace. A still, small voice won't be enough to prompt Joseph to take his waddling wife on a three-day donkey ride. Nothing short of a royal edict is going to move this couple, and yet that's exactly what God arranges. The arrogant Caesar in Rome flexes his muscle and expects the world to squeeze. In reality, he's just a puppet on a string. The shots are being called in heaven here, not Rome. A decree from Caesar is the only reason Joseph would uproot his pregnant wife and risk this rugged journey to his hometown of Bethlehem. Notice too, while the world's eyes are on Rome, the attention of heaven is on two peasants traveling down the Rift Valley from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I'm sure Rome and its Caesar dominated the day's headlines, while Mary and Joseph weren't even a back-page story. We need to realize that the news that concerns this world isn't always what interests God. The kindness of a little old lady, 
the faithfulness of a father to his kids, the person who gives a donation to their church may not get reported on the front pages of the AJC, but God sees, God knows. History's most important events are not always what we see on television. Here, the most important event that ever has occurred in the history of man is about to occur in Bethlehem. Angels will look on, but not a single reporter or camera will be there to cover the story. Verse 4 continues. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to a city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Ladies, imagine your full term. You're on the back of a donkey. You're riding over rocky terrain for 72 hours, no less. How many restroom stops did Joseph have to take? The rigors of the journey might have been what triggered Mary's labor. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Hebrew moms would wrap their babies in mummy-like shrouds to simulate the warmth of the womb. That's what Mary did with Jesus. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. When they arrived in Bethlehem, no one rolled out the red carpet. Instead, doors were slammed in their face. Not even the Econo Lodge had a room for God's Son. You know, you visit Bethlehem today, and under the Church of the Nativity, you can walk down into a series of first century caves. At the time, they were on the city's outskirts. These caves served as stables for the livestock, and they were probably the site of Jesus' birth. Even today, the air there down below ground is cold and musky and smelly. Hey, when Joseph promised Mary a stable life, an actual stable and manger was not what she was thinking. Years later, when the little boy Jesus left the back door open, like all mothers do, she shouted, shut the door, you weren't born in a barn. But he was. God's son, the Lord of life, had peasants for parents. He was born in a stable. No doctor or midwife oversaw his birth. His first bassinet was a stone feed trough. His birth announcement came not to royal dignitaries, but to despised and grungy shepherds. Can you imagine a more ironic way to stage history's most important event? God defied every human convention. The king of heaven came to earth, not with glitz and glamour, not with celebrity and fanfare, but humbly. And he lived the same way he came. Today, where do people get off, Sir, people who serve him get off expecting special treatment? Not when Jesus took the low road. Hey, we should take that same road. Verse 8 tells us, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. It was Alfred Edersheim, the Hebrew scholar, who suggested that these were not ordinary flocks, but the sheep used in the temple sacrifices. 
Bethlehem is just a few miles south of Jerusalem in the Jewish temple. In a sense, Jesus was a member of these sacrificial flocks. For he was the Lamb of God who would end all sacrifices. It was appropriate that the news of his birth was first announced to the shepherds aligned with the temple. We're told, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Good news, not just to the Jews, but to all people. Jesus is for all people. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, You know, my, I hate to disappoint you here, but the angels were saying, not singing. One of my favorite Christmas carols is Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Heard it yesterday. But it's not accurate. The angels aren't singing, they're saying. For your information, only twice in the scriptures do the angels sing. In Job 38 verse 7, at creation, the angels sang for joy. And in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8, around God's throne, the angels join the redeemed in praising the Lamb. Angels sing in the beginning and when Jesus returns while the world remains in its fallen state, angelic lips refuse to sing. But here they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it always inspires me to recall that the angels came to the shepherds of all people. Shepherds were dubious characters. When the shepherds came to town, the police were put on alert. See a shepherd, and you made sure you put one hand on your wallet. In fact, a shepherd's testimony was inadmissible in a civil court in the first century. Yet God's peace and goodwill first came to the worst of people. The light of God came to shady shepherds. That means there's hope for folks like us. And then verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They wanted to see for themselves. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They didn't just sit on what they'd seen. They spread the news of Jesus far and wide. And we should do the same. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. I wonder what other stories Mary told Luke that he didn't include in his gospel. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we'll be allowed to browse through Mary's baby book. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. 
The shepherds praised while Mary pondered. Praising and pondering go hand in hand. Shout it out and mull it over. Witness and worship. Both responses are examples for us to follow. And then verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Did you know that when a newborn male is born, they lack vitamin K? Vitamin K is what provides the blood its clotting abilities. It takes seven days for the baby's blood to begin to coagulate. And God knew this detail long before modern science. For the law of Moses required that every baby boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Why wait eight days? It was necessary for the clotting to occur. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Besides circumcision, the Mosaic law also required a Jewish couple to observe two more ceremonial laws, the mom's purification and the payment of a redemption price. The purification required a sacrifice. And if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could buy a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This was the poor man's option. Isn't it interesting that Joseph and Mary qualified for the pauper's exemption? And while in the temple, Joseph and Mary bumped into two old saints. Verse 25 tells us. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, a title for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christos is the Greek for Messiah. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And here Simeon quotes Isaiah chapter 52 verse 10. The old sage knew what most Jews at the time didn't, and many still don't. That Messiah will be a light, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And now that Simeon has seen that light, he's ready to close his eyes for the final time. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And, and I'm sure this was one more marvel added to Mary's baby book. But the old man wasn't through. Verse 34. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel 
and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon makes a fourfold prediction about this child. Jesus will be pivotal. Every human will rise or fall on their reaction to him. Many will rise and fall over this child. He'll be persecuted. He's a sign which will be spoken against. And indeed he was. He'll cause pain, especially to Mary, for a sword will pierce through your own soul also, she was told. Of course, this was fulfilled at the cross. Can you imagine Mary watching her son bleed and die? She was blessed. She was highly favored but it didn't shelter her soul from being pierced. And Jesus will peel back facades and hypocrisies. Simeon says the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus will be pivotal and persecuted. His life will cause his mother pain, and he'll peel back the world's intentions. No one will trifle with Mary's child. He'll be a force to reckon with. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. Now Anna had been married seven years. But that was 84 years ago. The earliest a Jew could marry was around the age 13, which made Anna at least 104 years old. And instead of remarrying, she had given herself totally to God. She now lived in the temple. She performed chores for the priests. And Anna had a bucket list. It was short. She wanted to see the Messiah. And on this day it happened. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him, of Jesus, to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And what was it like over the next few years to parent the God-man. In his book, God Came Near, Max Licato, he tries to answer that question. And in his book, he has a chapter entitled, 25 Questions for Mary. I love his questions. Here are a few. When Jesus saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever catch Jesus gazing at the flesh on his arm while holding a clod of dirt? And did you ever think, that's God eating my soup. <laughs> Good questions for Mary. Mary 
probably had answers to those questions tucked away in her baby book. What was life like for Jesus growing up? Well, we're not sure. He was certainly taught the scriptures from an early age. We know he learned to trade. He followed in his foster father's footsteps and became a carpenter like Joseph. Though a tiny village, Nazareth, sat at the crossroads of three major trade routes, strangers in town no doubt exposed Jesus to various people in different cultures. Nazareth was just across the valley, about four miles southeast of a town called Zephorus, which was the summer retreat for the Jewish Sanhedrin. Tradition says that Zephorus was where Mary spent her childhood. Perhaps she had relatives there and and visited Zephorus often. Jesus and Joseph may have found carpentry work in this bustling town. In Zephorus, perhaps a young Jesus could have been taught by rabbis on vacation. Imagine the most brilliant minds in Judaism added to his education. Well, in verse 40, Luke summarizes. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus exhibited unusual spiritual strength and keen discernment. From an early age, it was obvious the hand of God, the grace of God, was upon him. I'm sure Luke spent days browsing through Mary's baby book. Why he didn't record more stories, we're not sure. We wish he had. But he closes chapter 2 with an incident that he probably thought was indicative of Jesus' childhood. Verse 41. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. All Jewish males were required to journey to the temple each year for three major feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother Mary did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, before you report Joseph and Mary to defects for child neglect, understand a Jewish pilgrimage. The families would caravan together as they went up to Jerusalem. The women would be in front, all talking and chatting and catching up with each other. The men and the boys would be in the rear. It was like a big party parade. Mary thought Joseph had Jesus. Joseph thought Mary had him. We've all done that if we're parents. Neither parent realized that their son wasn't with them until they had stopped that night to camp. In verse 46, they realize their mistake and they rush back, searching frantically. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Imagine this. Jesus, equal to a sixth grader at the time, with the Jewish scholars discussing scripture, impressing them with his keen knowledge. So when they saw him, they were amazed. 
And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? They should have known that he was attending to heavenly business. Jesus lived in two worlds. He was firmly planted on this earth. But at the same time, he had an ear tuned to heaven. And here's the question for you and me. In whose business are we embroiled? Are we so wrapped up in our own stuff that we neglect the concerns of heaven? Well, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. I'm sure she did. Luke included this story to show us that even at 12, Jesus had a sense of who he was and of what he had come to do. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And here's a model for all conscientious parents. We should ask ourselves, is our child growing in wisdom? Or are they expanding intellectually and in stature? Are they healthy physically and in favor with God? Are they growing spiritually? That's most important. And are they growing in favor with men or socially? Are they being provided opportunities to interact with their peers? Here's a balanced upbringing. Children need to grow intellectually and physically, and spiritually, and socially. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Etruia, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. And here what's happening is Luke is nailing down a date for us. And when historians connect all of these dots, they arrive at a date of approximately 29 A.D., which meant that both Jesus and John were around 33, 35 years old when they began their ministries. Now at that time, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John. We remember the angel coming to Zacharias and predicting John's birth. John was a priest after his father Zacharias. He was a priest by pedigree. But he had abandoned the corrupt and religious system of his day. The priests were, who were his peers lived a life of ease and opulence. John did just the opposite. No fancy robes for John. He wore a camel's hair coat. You remember he dined on locusts and wild honey, a poor man's food. Sun-dried locusts have the texture of shrimp. The honey helps. Amidst the rigors of the wilderness, John developed a simpler, stronger, more authentic walk with God. And now the time has come for John to speak up, to speak to the nation. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's message was twofold. Repent and be baptized. Turn from sin toward God. 
That's repentance. Then prove it publicly by being baptized. This was his stump speech. And it was unusual. For only Gentiles were baptized as a sign of conversion. Yet John was baptizing Jews. These repentant Jews were getting real. They were admitting that they were no more righteous than the Gentiles. A revival was occurring. In verse 4, Luke quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The Old Testament had predicted that Messiah would have an advanced man, a forerunner. John was the voice crying in the wilderness. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Before a foreign king ever visited a country, the local DOT was sent out to level the hills and straighten out the dangerous bends in the road and to fill up all the potholes. Every effort was made to smooth out the road. And in a spiritual sense, this was John's job. He was to prepare for Jesus' arrival. He was to plow up the pride of the people's hearts and ready them for faith in their Messiah. And John did so boldly, verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? John didn't mince words. He could have cared less about upholding the status quo or appeasing the establishment. John compared the religious leaders of his day to a dangerous brood of poisonous snakes. You know, this man was amazing. To our knowledge, he never worked a miracle, never taught in the temple, yet people flocked to hear him. How did he attract such crowds? It was because the people sensed in John the Spirit of God. They were tired of hollow religion. And they hungered for an authentic relationship with God. Rather than sensational, John was sincere. He had what people wanted. The church today could learn from his example. And John tells the crowd, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. John taught a behavioral about face. Turn from your sinful ways. While the Jews taught the opposite, they trusted in their lineage, in their bloodline. Because they were from the right family, they were okay with God. John emphasized a turn, the Jews told a line. They were proud to be Abraham's heirs. Yet John says, that's no big deal. God can turn rabbi, rocks into rabbis if need be. What marks a true child of God is fruits worthy of repentance. John insisted on real change. Fruits are evidence of repentance. Have I adopted new friends? Am I altering my attitude? Am I adopting new pastimes? Am I tangibly showing that I'm willing to follow Jesus? This was kind of the kind of evidence John looked for. Verse 9. 
And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Trees without fruit get axed and end up firewood. And the same is true with people. Just making a confession, just tipping your hat to religion doesn't cut it with God. Repentance is the desire to change. So the people ask him, saying, what shall we do then? And John gives them a sample of the evidence that God is seeking. First, he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. In essence, if you're truly serious about following God, you'll stop living for yourselves and you'll care about other people. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, play fair. True repentance should be seen in how you conduct business. Sunday confessions need to bleed over into Monday practices. And then likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Don't bully people around to get your way. Learn to be content. Hey, does your life show fruits of repentance? Does your life show a willingness to change and a true desire to follow God? Verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. See, a rabbi had disciples who did an assortment of meaningful tasks for him. But the one job too dirty for even a disciple was removing sandals. This was reserved for the slave. And John here is saying that he is not worthy to be Jesus' slave. By lineage, Jesus and John were cousins, remember. Spiritually, Jesus was of a different breed. He was on a higher level. And John says of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John baptized with water which symbolized a turning point, the desire to change. But his baptism imparted no power to make that change. Whereas Jesus immerses us with the Holy Spirit in fire, or in essence, with God's power and passion. You know, for years, I knew only one baptism. The baptism of John, the baptism of repentance. Oh, every week the pastor would decipher my sin and pound home God's judgment. I'd come to the altar genuinely sorry and promise to change. But though I wanted to change, I lacked the power, the dynamic to do so until I learned of Jesus' baptism. Now I lean into him. Jesus promises me the power to make the changes he desires. See, we have to want to change 
But then Jesus is the one who empowers us to do it. Are we trusting in him? You know, in NASA's early days, the problem with space travel was the ability to break out of Earth's gravitational pull. How can you produce an upward explosion greater than gravity's downward force? And this mirrors our spiritual problem. We want to live pleasing to God, but sin keeps pulling us down. How do we break through? Only Jesus can give us the upward thrust that we need. He's the one who fills us with a Godward push greater than sin's downward pull. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that lifts me from the gravity of sin. And it's mine for the asking. God gives the Spirit's power to those who have faith to ask. But Jesus also baptizes with fire or with judgment. For he says, John says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Technically, John was an Old Testament prophet, and here he follows their pattern. He merges Jesus' first and second comings into one prophecy. At his first coming, Jesus baptizes us with his spirit, but at his second coming, he executes a harvest. He will apply his winnowing fan, that is his pitchfork, to separate the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the unrighteous. Verse 18, with many other exhortations, John preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. King Herod was an evil man. He committed adultery with his sister-in-law. They both divorced their previous spouses and married each other. Their antics were Jerusalem's soap opera. And John had tuned in. He rebuked them publicly. Adultery, divorce, incest. How could he ignore their sin? At first... Herod Antipas tried to shut John up by locking him up in prison. But that happens later. Verse 21 flashes back to a previous incident. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. Once a church in New Orleans caught fire. The fire department doused the flames. The next day, they sent an inspector. The man happened to be a Roman Catholic to survey the scene. Well, as he was walking along through the damage, he tripped and he fell into the baptismal pool, which was still full of water from the night before. Well, after the inspector had dried off, he asked, he says, who does this church belong to? He was told the Protestants. The wet Catholic shook his head and said, I don't know much about them, but I guess I'm one of them now. And just as that Catholic inspector identified with the Protestants through baptism, this is what baptism meant to Jesus. Since our Lord was sinless and had no need to repent, he had no need to be baptized. But Jesus was baptized to identify himself with us. Thus we in turn 
are baptized to identify ourselves with you. And while Jesus prayed, Luke tells us. Notice this. Luke is the only gospel writer to mention Jesus praying at his baptism. In fact, we're going to discover that Luke has a fascination with Jesus' prayer life. He speaks about him praying often. Well, while Jesus prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Now I'm sure you realize there are all kinds of speculation as to how Jesus spent his 35 years before he began his ministry. What did he do during that time? Where did he go? What kind of life did he live? We don't know. The Bible is silent on those years. But we do know from the Father's affirmation from heaven that in all that Jesus did, in everywhere he went, in all that he said, he pleased the Father in heaven. That Jesus was sinless. Here's a beautiful picture of the triune God. We have the Son standing in the water. The Father is blessing from heaven and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. God is one God, but He exists in three distinct persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And then verse 23 tells us, Now Jesus Himself began His ministry at about 30 years of age. About 30 years of age. Being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. History tells us that Herod died in 4 B.C., Herod the Great. And Jesus was born, obviously, before his death. If 29 A.D. was the starting point of his ministry, that would have made Jesus about 33 years old. Here Luke rounds it off to about 30. Notice, too, Luke calls Jesus Joseph's supposed son. Joseph was just his foster father. Jesus' biological dad was God. Joseph's genealogy appears in Matthew. Luke gives us Mary's genealogy. The father's lineage was political. It traced the kingly or royal line. While the mother's lineage was genetic, it showed the bloodline of Jesus. One other point here, under Jewish law, if Mary had no brothers, then her husband was considered her father's son. Thus her lineage reads, Joseph, the son of Heli. And I'll let you read the rest of Mary's genealogy. One fact you'll notice is that unlike Matthew's family tree, which stops at Abraham, Luke's genealogy of Jesus traces all the way back to the first man, Adam. Matthew wrote to Jews who claimed Abraham as their father, but Luke wrote to Greeks who exalted all of humanity. Luke's focus on Jesus' humanness proved to the Greeks that Jesus was the man above all men. Jesus was the ultimate man. And indeed he was. He's my hero. How about you? Let's pray.